And so we're in Revelation 18. The title of our sermon today is Economic Armageddon. So what would you do if you learned that your entire life savings had been wiped out in a day? I read an article a few years ago about an Israeli woman whose nest egg went out with the trash. Here's what the article said. What was supposed to be a pleasant surprise turned into the shock of a lifetime. A woman named Anat, living in Tel Aviv, Israel, gave her elderly mother a new mattress for a birthday gift. When her elderly mother got home and saw the new mattress, she was in a panic. What did you do with my old mattress? And then Annette explained, Well, we threw it out with the trash to make room for your new bed. This good-hearted gesture ended up bankrupting Annette's mother, who had stuffed her life savings over $1 million inside her old bed she'd been saving for decades. The family informed the city dump of the blunder, and a massive search began to try and find the million-dollar mattress. Unfortunately, city officials warned that the mattress was most likely burned up in the incinerator. Are you sick at your stomach yet? <laughs> so, makes you think twice for those of you who are keeping your life savings in a mason jar buried in the backyard. Think twice. That story reminds us of what Jesus said about the uncertainty of riches in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Warren Wiersbe, the wise Bible commentator, noted that all earthly treasure is susceptible to the three R's. Rot, rust, and robbers. Of course, as we talk about economic Armageddon, we have to remember that those who trust in the stock market and other financial institutions aren't safe either. We learn in school about Black Tuesday, a day that changed America forever. October 29, 1929, that was the day that the stock market crashed and the Great Depression began. We're told that the Dow lost 23% of its value in one day, and by the end of the next month, $100 billion in wealth had evaporated. There were financially ruined people all over the country. Life savings were wiped out. Banks and businesses folded up. Unemployment rates skyrocketed, and the homeless piled into cardboard shanty villages called Hoovervilles, and long lines at the soup kitchen snaked around the street corner. Will Rogers, who was a famous entertainer and writer, alive during that time. He happened to be in New York when the economy tanked. And here's what he said in a newspaper column. He said, when Wall Street took the tailspin, you had to stand in line to find a window to jump out of. And speculators were selling space for bodies in the East River. That's what happens when you put your hope in money. When gold is your God. Now, my grandpa, he grew up during the Great Depression, but he says that uh, they grew up so poor that uh, they didn't know the difference. <laughs> he said that they were poor as Job's turkey, whatever that means. Now, most of us in this room, in fact, all of us in this room, were not alive uh, when Black Tuesday hit. But many of us do remember the panic of the 2008 financial crisis. In that year, the 
biggest single point loss ever in the stock market occurred on September 29, 2008. The Dow plummeted 777 points in one day. Approximately $1.2 trillion in market value was gone. Some of you remember those hard times. The U.S. household lost 18% of its net worth, and some of America's most secure, quote-unquote, financial institutions either failed or had to be bailed out by Uncle Sam. I never did get my bailout, did you? Well, Lehman Brothers, Wachovia, Merrill Lynch, AIG, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, they all went belly up. The December 2009 issue of Time Magazine carried this headline, The Decade from Hell, and then the lead article reported, bookended by 9-11 at the start and a financial wipeout at the end, the first 10 years of this century will likely go down as the most dispiriting and disillusioning decade Americans have tried to live through in the post-World War II era. Praise God, I'm still here, and you're still here, and God's Word is still true, and God is still on the throne, and the Gospel is still saving. As bad as those times were, the Bible tells us that there is coming an economic Armageddon that will make Black Tuesday look like a cakewalk. Now, the book of Revelation devotes two chapters to the destruction of the Antichrist's world empire. Chapter 17 and 18. This world empire which will accompany not only a religious system, a political system, but also an economic system system as well. In chapter 17, which we looked at last week, the focus there is God's judgment on Babylon and the idolatrous religious system that will rule the end days. And then we come to chapter 18 today and we read about how God is going to bring down the commercial and the financial sector of Babylon, which will be the Antichrist capital city. Like the old storybook or rhyme that we learned as kids like Humpty Dumpty who sat on a wall and had a great fall, the Antichrist and the crown jewel of his kingdom, which will be Babylon, will fall and no one will rush and no one will be able to put it back together again. Because Jesus Christ is coming and He's going to remodel the world. He's going to set up His kingdom, praise God, a day of prosperity, peace, and world worship, and I'm looking forward to it. Amen? But as we study Revelation 18 this morning, the fall of Babylon, the economic Armageddon, I want us to notice a few features. First off, we notice number one, the crash of Babylon's commerce. The crash of Babylon's commerce. Read with me verse 1 and 2. And after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit and every unclean bird and every unclean and detestable beast. And then as we go down to uh, verse 8, look what it says there. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And then verse 10, And they will stand afar off in fear and torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Now one could make the case that the Bible is a tale of two cities. You have Jerusalem, 
which is known as the city of God. And then you have Babylon, who is the city of man. Babylon is mentioned 295 times in the Bible, second only to Jerusalem. And we read here that in the end times, the city of Babylon will rise to prominence again. An example of history repeating, you might say. Because we know that according to Genesis 10 and 11, Babylon was the capital of the first world empire. It was ruled by a devilish man named Nimrod. And here in the last days, during the tribulation, Babylon will once again be a world capital, except sitting at the top will be the final world dictator, Satan's CEO, the Antichrist. So we see that as we open chapter 18, God's judgment has come full circle. Babylon is not only the cradle, but also the grave of man's civilization. Just as God judged Babylon in the beginning, He will judge Babylon again at the end. Bible commentator Henry Morris makes a perceptive, insightful comment in one of his books about Babylon and the future city that's going to rise. Listen to what he says. Babylon is indeed a prime prospect for rebuilding apart from any prophetic information. Its location is the most ideal in the world for any kind of international center. Not only is it located in the fertile Tigris-Euphrates plain, but it is near some of the world's richest oil reserves. Babylon is near the center of the earth's land masses, a crossroads for Europe, Asia, and Africa, with the Persian Gulf nearby giving access to global shipping. He continues by saying there is no more ideal location anywhere for a world trade center with all the natural advantages. It is not far-fetched to suggest that the future financial capital of the ten-nation federation established by the Antichrist during the tribulation should be built here. It's interesting when you notice Babylon in recent world events. In fact, World leaders and governments have been pumping a lot of cash into rebuilding Babylon back to her former glory. Many of you recognize the man pictured there. That's the dictator Saddam Hussein. You remember when he rose to power in the early 80s and then the 90s there in Iraq? He conceived a grandiose scheme to rebuild Babylon. In fact, he invested $500 million dollars toward restoring the ancient city, and he promoted himself as the second incarnation of Nebuchadnezzar, whom we read of in the book of Daniel. But Hussein also had 60 million bricks made to rebuild that city, and each of those bricks was minted with a seal, which you see pictured up there in the top corner, and the parallel images of both him and ancient Nebuchadnezzar, so you can see the posturing there. Well, you know what happened in 2003. We had the U.S. and the Iraq war, and that leveled the country. That sort of ended Saddam Hussein's pipe dream. But you know, in the rebuilding years, the Iraqis have sought help. And who have they come to? They've come to America. And wouldn't you know that the previous administration, 2009, the Obama State Department pledged $700,000 to what they called the future of the Babylon Project saying that Babylon stands out among Iraq's rich contributions to human culture. And so even America has begun to fund the rebuilding of Babylon. Interesting, isn't it? It's amazing today that many world leaders are unknowingly fulfilling Bible prophecy by trying to rebuild Babel. 
She's not there today, but the Bible predicts that she will be in a great and grandiose form. And her days will be limited. She will be judged by Almighty God. So we see the collapse of Babylon's commerce. But then as we move on in this chapter number 2, John outlines for us the causes of Babylon's catastrophe. Why exactly does God turn the crosshairs on this terrible city? If you go back to the days of Nimrod and through Nebuchadnezzar and eventually to the Antichrist, it's all about Babylon's prosperity, her religion, her morals, which have stood in polar opposition to that of God. And John gives six reasons in this text why God brings swift and sudden destruction to Babylon just before Christ returns. And as we go through this list, I want you to be mindful and notice how much modern America parallels future Babylon. It's eerie, in fact. Look in verse 2. The first reason why Babylon is destroyed is because of her sorceries. Her sorceries. Verse 2, she has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every unclean bird and every unclean spirit and detestable beast. You know, in the days of Daniel, the kings of Babylon had a royal brain trust of astrologers and magicians and occultists. And once again, we read that in the end times, Babylon is going to become a demonic stronghold. In fact, John calls the city a, a cage for every unclean bird, which is an allusion back to Jesus' parable of the sower, where he used the birds in that parable as a picture of Satan who comes to steal away the seed of the gospel. You can read about that in Matthew 13, 4 and 3. He says, when anyone hears the word in the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. So you see the parallel idiom as it carries over here. And so like old black crows, the demons will nest in this corrupted city and they will find it conducive to doing their dirty work. And it makes you think, if Babylon has a center there for demons to dwell and roost in, what does it say about New York City or Rome? or Los Angeles, or Asheville, North Carolina. Friend, I believe that demons work in the shadows, and even here in Asheville, North Carolina, western North Carolina, there's a roosting place where Satan's dirty birds can park and come and roost and do their dirty work here. You don't believe me? You just walk around the city of Asheville, and you feel the spiritual darkness all around us. Friend, we're living in spiritual Babylon today. Babylon is destroyed because of her sorceries, then also because of her seductions. Look at what verse 3 says. All nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. You know, in Daniel 5, God crashed Belshazzar's drunken revelry when he wrote a message on the wall, you remember that? Daniel chapter 5. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Daniel had to come and read the writing on the wall. Numbered, numbered, weight, and divided. And once again, we see that God's wrath is going to come to future Babylon as they are partying in luxury, living only for the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That will be the mantra. And those intoxicated with Babylon's wine will be in for a rude awakening when their empire falls and comes to an abrupt end. Her seductions, her sorceries, and then we see that she's destroyed also in verse 5 because of her sins. 
For her sins, verse 5, are heaped high as heaven, and God remembered her iniquities. Don't miss the parallelism here. The writer is saying Babylon's sins are heaped as high to the heavens. They've been stacked one upon another as if building blocks. It's obviously an allusion here to the Tower of Babel where that was an ancient monument to man's humanism and paganism and materialism. And just like he did in Genesis, God is going to step in at the end and He's going to judge this profane tower of evil. So, they're destroyed because of their sins and their seductions, their sorceries. How about verse 7? Their self-glorification. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, and I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar declared himself a god when he erected that golden image there on the plains of Babylon. He had everybody bow down and worship him. Well, we see that the pride of Nebuchadnezzar is going to live again in the end times through the Antichrist. He will declare himself to be a god. And just as God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and made him a beast walking the earth on the ground uh, as, a, as a beast for seven years, God is going to bring low the final world dictator, the Antichrist, because of self-glorification. Pride comes before a fall. Her self-glorification, her sins, her seductions, her sorceries. Then look in verse 13. Her slaveries. Look at what is mentioned among the bill of goods that's bought and sold there. Cinnamon and spices and incense and myrrh and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and chariots. Watch this. And slaves. That is, human souls. You say, I thought that we ended the slave trade some 150 years ago. Well, it's going to be resurrected in the end times. The passage refers not only to the buying and selling of people as property, but you could also make the case of sex slaves, which are being processed and passed around through our world today. Did you know that according to the U.S. State Department, there's approximately 20 to 30 million sex slaves in our world today? Friend, I don't let my children get out of my sight. I wouldn't think twice about letting my kids go around Walmart or the mall by themselves because, friend, there are evil predators all around our land seeking to snatch up an innocent, pure child and enslave them into this brutal and godless thing called sex slavery. You better keep an eye on your kids and your grandkids. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying be aware of the evil world that we live in. Human trafficking, listen to this, is the third largest international crime industry behind illegal drugs and armed trafficking. It reportedly generates a profit of $32 billion a year. I thought mankind was sophisticated. We have Wi-Fi, we have Internet, we have Netflix and air conditioning and all these modern amenities, and yet, look how wicked our hearts still are. We still buy and sell human beings. We could take a precious little baby and kill it and suck its brains out and take a little precious child pure and sell them for a price. Man's heart hasn't changed. We're still the same depraved people that we've been since the fall of Adam. Between 14,500 and 17,500 people are trafficked in these United States every year. You know what the average cost of a sex slave is around our world today? $90. $90 for somebody's son, somebody's 
daughter, somebody's precious little grandchild. You see, we're, we're getting back to those times. This horrible practice is going to increase in the last days. And it's reason enough right there alone for God to justify His destruction of Babylon. There's one more reason why they will be destroyed. Verse 24 tells us about it. Destroyed because of her slaughters. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. You just thought the concentration camps of Auschwitz and Treblinka were a thing of the past. But during the tribulation, the Bible tells us that Babylon is going to be known for the systematic genocide of Christians. The blood of the tribulation saints will be avenged, though, by God when He comes to destroy Babylon. You say, well, what am I to take away from all this? You know, when you read through Babylon's rap sheet, it sounds a whole lot like the United States of America in 2019. Like Babylon, we have become the moral polluters of the world. What do we have today that Babylon doesn't have in the future? We have false religions. We have sex trafficking. We have a thriving drug industry. Our politicians have legalized sin, put evil into law. Our culture celebrates and parades every abomination that God says is unholy. We say, that's a great thing. Let's advertise it and make a parade about it. Blood flows freely in our streets. We woke up this morning and found out that not only were 20-some people killed in El Paso, but another nine people were killed yesterday in Dayton, Ohio, the heartland of America. Have we lost our minds as a nation? And yet, that pales in comparison to the genocide that we have committed against the unborn in our country. We'll snuff out a little life and not think anything of it. America is looking like Babylon every day, friend. And I'm not saying that we are the Babylon of Revelation 18, but that same Spirit dwells in our bloodstream, friend. And just like Babylon, we need to realize that God is not only our only hope, but He's our greatest threat as well. You see, the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And unless we have a Nineveh-like revival where there is repentance over sin, starting at the White House and going to the schoolhouse and the church house and your house and yes, even the dog house until there's that kind of repentance, our future doesn't look very good in this nation. It's not a Republican or Democrat thing. It's not a racism thing. We don't have a political problem or a media problem or a Trump problem. You know what this country's got? A God-hating sin problem. That's our problem in this nation. And until the people of God are brokenhearted over it, friend, I'm not so sure that we'll even make it to Revelation 18. We'll become the footnote in the history of somebody else's conquest because we will have done it to ourselves. When will the people of God have a fear of God again? When will we weep over the things that God weeps for? All these people in Babylon, they're going to weep when God's judgment falls. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Look at what verse 21 talks about. The cries of Babylon citizens. Number three, the cries of Babylon citizens. Verse 21 reads like this. Then a mighty angel took up a, a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, 
so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and be found no more. Oh my goodness. The demise of Babylon is going to make Black Tuesday and Hiroshima and 9-11, it's going to be like all those rolled into one. And in one hour, this bustling metropolis of greed and sex and industry and blood will be silenced. John talks about three different groups of people in the city of Babylon who will cry out in the wake of this great cataclysm. First off, the monarchs will mourn. Look what verse 9 says. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail when they see the smoke of her burning. The height of Babylon's glory, the greatest kings on the earth will occupy her. But in just 60 seconds, all their power and all their hopes of a global utopia is going to crumble like a sandcastle in the tide. The monarchs will mourn. The merchants will mourn. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen and purple cloth and silk and all kinds of scented wood, etc. You can read the, the merchant list there. Imagine some of today's biggest companies. Apple, Amazon, Wells Fargo, BP, GM, all going bankrupt in the same day. All the titans of industry are going to have their accounts zeroed and the world will experience a financial meltdown multiple times worse than any stock market crash of history. Monarchs will mourn, the merchants will mourn, and then the mariners will mourn. Look at what verse 17 says. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all those who trade in on the sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning. What city is like this great city, they said. During the tribulation, the, the Persian Gulf will be flooded with merchant ships coming from Babylon to export her riches all across the globe. And then imagine one day when it's all gone, all the shipmaster's stock goes up in flames. You know what James 5 says? James 5 says that in the end times, people are going to look upon their riches and their Robes will be moth-eaten and their gold and silver will be tarnished. And their thing that they put their trust and their hope and their security in is ultimately going to be their undoing because when you stand before a holy God and you see His righteous judgment, it doesn't matter that you were the CEO of a 500 fortune company. It doesn't matter how much money was in your bank account. It doesn't matter how much you gave in philanthropy. God says, what did you do with my son? The cries of Babylon citizens. And then we read number four. This might be amazing to you. The celebration over Babylon's collapse. While there's death, destruction, wrath, and judgment here on the earth, notice what happens in verse 20 and 21. The sounds of the harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. The craftsmen of any craft will not be found in you. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. And your merchants and your great ones and all the earth and the nations who have been deceived by your sorcery. And so we see here that as Babylon is destroyed, the kings and the merchants, the sailors of the earth will cry. But in heaven, as we stand there in the presence of the Lamb of God, 
As we stand there on the balcony of heaven witnessing this great divine drama take place here on the earth, you know what there's going to be in heaven? Over the righteous judgment of God, there's going to be rejoicing. Yes, King Jesus. Yes, Lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, God, holy and true are your judgments. Why will there be rejoicing in heaven while this is taking place on the earth? Because finally the thing that the child of God has longed for, justice will be served. And this is where God's divine drama is headed. The wicked city of sin and evil and materialism and idolatry that's been responsible for the countless deaths of martyrs will be judged severely and will be judged suddenly. And all of God's people will stand and say, Yes, God, what took you so long? God's people who have suffered. God's people who have longed for Jesus Christ to right every wrong, to balance the scales of justice, will finally begin it to see it come to pass and say, yes, Jesus, you put your foot down. You show them that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we'll be there applauding Him as He does it. You say, I don't know, that's a strange message, Pastor. Oh, but do you understand the holiness of this God? Do you understand the justice of this God? Do you understand the love and the mercy of this God who shed His blood on an old rugged cross? The church, those who are true in Jesus Christ, will see the judgments of God and rejoice. What's the application of all this? You say, Pastor, this is a weird message. I came today to get a shot in the arm. I wanted to be encouraged. I wanted to be uplifted. Oh, but there's encouragement here. Encouragement because judgment is coming. Justice is coming. Jesus Christ will not sleep. God will not sit on His hands. He will not allow evil to prosper one day more than He has allowed it on His divine calendar. The application for you and me is in verse 4. We skipped over it intentionally so I could leave you with this. Verse 4, here's your application today, child of God. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and lest you share in her plagues. Not a popular message today, is it? John explained it like this in his epistle, verse 15 of chapter 2. He said this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, and the one who does the will of God abides forever. Friend, listen to me today. Come out from among them, God says. Don't be like Babylon. Don't think like Babylon. Don't have the worldview of Babylon. Don't celebrate the things and love the things that Babylon does. You see, our hope is not in government to solve our problems. Our security is not in Wall Street to bring us long-term peace on this world. Our morals don't come from Hollywood or social media. Friend, this world is passing away, and for the child of God, we're just passing through. Don't be possessed by your possessions, but remember that Jesus Christ is coming. Friend, we have to be ready. Knowledge of God's future judgment of Babylon should be a warning to us to not be enticed, not be ensnared by the demons of money and power and sex. You can't live with one foot in heaven and one foot in Babylon. If you could go back in time to 1912 and you had a fortune to invest, how dumb would it be to take that fortune and invest it in White Star Lines? 
You know who White Star Lines was? The company that built the Titanic. You have insider information of a judgment that is coming. Prophetic knowledge of the future. How foolish would it be, child of God, to invest yourself in the things of this world because ultimately, we read here in chapter 18, it's all going to end up on the ash heap of history. Man thinks, I'll get myself a place at the lake. I'll buy me a truck. I'll get me a boat. I'll get a bigger job, a better promotion. And then I'll be happy. Friend, none of that stuff is going to matter in the long run. Because it's all going to the junkyard one day. It's all going to be judged just as Babylon will be. Most of us remember 9-11. And yet on those terrorist attacks, our nation was targeted very specifically the World Trade Center for a reason. Because those towers, just as Babylon had a tower, those two towers represented American business and power and wealth. Am I not right? And when they were brought down, our whole nation realized how vulnerable and how misplaced our faith was in material things. Do you remember the weekend after 9-11 how churches were packed? You couldn't find a seat in the house of God because all of a sudden people realized that their whole world had been turned upside down and they were looking for answers. But then about a month later, we'd gone right back to the very same thing. Despite all the death and destruction of that day, there was glimmers of hope, though. God gave a message in the rubble. Frank Scalia was a construction worker in New York City. He volunteered to help recover bodies in the days after 9-11. Frank discovered 47 bodies. And while he was searching through the rubble, he came across a powerful symbol, which you see right there. A 20-foot tall steel beam cross was found in the wreckage of 9-11. The collapse of Tower 1 created a crude chamber in the clutter. And in the chamber, through a dusty sunrise, Frank spotted the cross. And after examining, engineers realized that the beams of this cross came from the two different buildings as they collapsed. One crushed into another, and they were forged together by fire, by the incredible heat of the burning of that day. There was a symbol there in the shards and the rubble and the trash. A cross was found in the crisis. And people asked, where was God in all of that madness? And the answer is right there. Right in the middle of all of it. Giving a symbol. Giving a message. Pointing us to mankind's only hope. The cross of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, I told you, America is looking more like Babylon every day. And even in our tragedies, God is speaking. God is pointing us to a symbol of hope and mercy and forgiveness. And even though the towers of man may fall, there is a symbol that still stands tall today, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that we still have time to repent before it's too late. The cross is still the place of forgiveness and grace. And as our musicians are coming, we're preparing for a time of invitation, and, and maybe you need to do business with God. Maybe you need to come to this altar and you need to deal with the Jesus of the cross. You need to repent of your sin. You know you're not living for the Lord. And if He were to come back today, your life would be in shambles. You might even be left behind because you're lost and undone. But if you want to repent of your sin, if, if you need to make a change in your life, this altar is going to be open. 
And you can come and you can repent and you can pray. Or maybe you've got a burden or a care in your life that's so great right now, you just need prayer and you just need encouragement. I'll be here waiting for you.